50 years ago. The show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, the last episode of The Ambassadors, Twang of Death, which ends this spy thriller with aliens in a less than thrilling way. I am Ben. I'm Luke. And I'm Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. On Monday 27th and Tuesday the 28th of April, rockets and satellites continue to be fired into space by China and the Soviet Union, with the latter potentially being used as a military communications network. In this episode of Doctor Who, aliens disrupt satellite communications for a bit. The concept of using space to transmit things back to Earth for military or public purposes is still in its infancy in the 1970s, but progress is going to be made in the next two decades to create, well, at least satellite television, which would have been nice if the free market hadn't profiteered from it between 1970 and 2020. We've got the, the beginnings of the Chinese space programme where they're first launching things up in space, and in 2020 had a certain virus not originated from China, um, we might have started to be talking more about Chinese feats on the moon because the next manned missions to the moon were planned by China, actually, of all countries. The Chinese space program has been the one that has accomplished the most in the last couple of years in terms of new firsts that they have themselves accomplished. They can't think of a communications satellite network being used anything other than for military purposes, which is interesting. It always seems to be like um, the internet and communications with satellites. People only ever thought of it in the Cold War about in military terms. But it became very clear after the Cold War, suddenly, hang on, we've got these lovely public and civil reasons we can use it to actually just talk to one another. Brain of thought developed as the Cold War both heightened and cooled, heightened and cooled, and then disappeared to sub-zero temperatures from the 90s onwards. Because, let's face it, folks, it hasn't ended. Um, on Thursday, the 30th of April, Pope Paul VI issues an apostolic letter which removes the restriction that if a Roman Catholic and a non-Roman Catholic marry, the latter is forced to bring up any children to be Roman Catholics. Last week, we talked about Christianity's grip loosening ever so slightly in schools in Britain, and now there is this minor concession from the Catholic Church. They still discourage non-Catholics from marrying Catholics, or vice versa, and pretty much everything else at this point, mind, but it does raise two interesting points. One is the um, idea of birthright, and how it's perfectly fine in the name plurality for people to love and marry and have children with whomever, regardless of religion, gender, give or take biology, um, what's the word, other word, race and um, nationality. So that in turn broadens the concept of globalisation and humanism to some extent. And the other 
ideal is the point of conservatism, because as we've seen with Christianity and here we see now with Roman Catholicism, they are conservative values such as religion. And so it is a ongoing development. What I find interesting is how the church is viewing itself. It's only loosening its grip ever so slightly, which means that it assumes that it still must have some influence, as opposed to nowadays, where in quite a lot of Western countries, its grip is even more loosened and what exactly they can do has been removed a, well, compared to 1970, a fair amount. So the fact that nowadays we're going even further, it kind of suggests that their grip is going to be loosening even, even, even more. Yes, a, a, a mass revival is not necessarily on the cards. Mm. Yeah, I suppose you could say... Well, we're not out of the pandemic yet, Ben. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows, exactly, yeah. As I say, it's not on the cards, but if it's in the deck, please don't shuffle it. <laughs> and finally, on Friday the 1st of May, the British United Provident Association, Booper the Heart People to you and me and all our British audience, introduces diagnosis by computer at a London medical centre. It looks at your medical and social histories, as well as weight, height and hearing ability, and presumably determines any ailments from that. What, what is social history? It, it's a very interesting point um, you raise, because it could refer to um, class and to that extent whether or not life expectancy could be significantly raised or significantly lowered based on your wealth and capital. A computer is perfect at the task it's set. It's um, humans introducing their own prejudices that make faulty computers and algorithms. So that was my main interest in this question. Oh, who designed the computer? Well, this is a very interesting concept because ultimately, yes, once, once you pre-program it with your thoughts and conceptions, that in turn can lead to wrong diagnosis and death in some cases. This is taking away from this 60s mindset of pure clinicalness. This is a revolution against invasiveness and directness. And if you look at last week when we were talking about the introduction of PhotoFit, that is also removing more of the human element that drags things out and makes people feel more uncomfortable. Here, you have that same thing going on where it feels a little less personal and it can also be sped up a bit. It's taking away that human element. Hmm. Once again, we have technological advancement. Indeed, we had it with the rockets and the satellites, but everything is obviously down to human error. Praise the machine. Quite, yes, in this self-isolatory world that we live in, praise the machine and all <laughs> the government information that comes out of it. That's quite enough of that. <clears throat> that was the news, and now we shall get into The Ambassadors of Death, episode 7, which aired on Saturday the 2nd of May. We end this serial with a showdown broadcast live on television, apparently, which sort of ends with the bad guys getting rounded up by the good guys and the hostages being released. It, only it's Doctor Who and the hostages are aliens. Apart from that, it's a very squeezed episode full of things leading to a flat ending, unlike the previous serial, which exploded. 
it's an the ambassadors are returned and let us never speak of this again kind of mentality. It's interesting. My overall feelings about the two serials are the Silurians is the better serial, but I think Ambassadors of Death is more enjoyable to watch in the when you're like about halfway through a couple of episodes in Ambassadors is a lot more fun, but it's much more fluffy whilst you know when you're watching the Silurians, this is proper meaty stuff. Ambassadors of Death, it is that sort of uh, like, uh, having candy floss or whatever. It's enjoyable in the moment and then you can discard it and not think about it so much. Yeah. Interesting that you bring up candy floss because I had to brush my teeth in order to get this episode out of my thoughts. Regan breaks into another facility. <laughs> I, that's the third time. And he just got away with it. And, of course, it's just more all-powerful conspiracy stuff until suddenly they're not. I just don't... I don't get along with this serial. I, I don't get it. So you could argue I, that it is, it is irradiated candy floss. <laughs> you want to eat it, but by God, it's going to kill you. Destination is more enjoyable in the Silurians, but the journey is more enjoyable in Ambassadors of Death. As you say, for the Ambassadors of Death, the journey is what counts, so let's journey into this final episode. General Carrington does not shoot the Doctor in his face, because Regan reasons with him that conversing with the aliens, or the, quote, enemy, unquote, will assist in their plans. Carrington reluctantly agrees because he wants to avert an alien invasion, which the Doctor refutes with the truth that the aliens are not invading. Carrington had met the aliens on Mars Probe 6, where astronauts were killed by the first contact. How did they hush that up? So, Carrington set up his massive conspiracy to make sure that the world was protected, again in quotes, from the aliens, which the Doctor understands. Hulk here is dealing with the concept of madness in a very rational way, with a bit of backstory, albeit crammed into three minutes at the beginning of the last episode. But it's still performed brilliantly by John Abenary, or so I think. What's interesting to me about this bit is that I always thought that people viewed space as really, really exciting, or at least they thought of astronauts as really exciting people. But this episode is sort of saying, don't be scared about space. There's not as much to fear because there is benevolence out there. I don't really think this is talking about space as a space perspective. It's written from a perspective of not understanding space, because if you truly understood what space is, like the physicality of it, you would actually agree with Carrington, and Carrington would be the good guy. So maybe there is a little bit of leeway that you there, because Carrington is never... It does give him a respectful end in the episode. Um, he just surrenders because he's an honourable man. Um, he's right. Space is the deadliest, most terrifying, awful thing that humans have ever come against. It, it's totally against our, us in terms of us surviving. And um, as Doctor eventually comes towards, you know, understanding with uh, oxygen, that's a good example of how Doctor Who is changing what's just but space is deadly right in front of you. Don't let fear hold you back from cooperation is essentially the moral of the story, which was sort of the moral of the story of the Silurians as well. 
that's how we know his hulkiness had an influence. Mm. Mm. Cooperation. What an interesting word for a left-leaning writer to use. The Brig and Cornish note that the alien spaceship is en route to Earth. Carrington brings one of the aliens to the space centre, whilst the Doctor makes his communications device. The other astronauts are sent out to do some more raiding of government property, killing guards and policemen on the way. Although, now that I watch this raid, it makes me think, if the alien's touch is so powerful, one false move in the van... They accidentally touched the petrol tank or something, and it should blow up. But enough of that. Carrington and his alien hostage are to be the centre of a worldwide broadcast, which will unveil the aliens and their threat. Hmm, what does this say about the media, I wonder? I finally have my media point. It's been bubbling in the cauldron since Spearhead from Space, but I think I finally got it. In Spearhead, there's the press at the hospital who get the wrong end of the stick and are an irritant for unit and know of unit. In Doctor Who and the Silurians, they get the Brigadier's phone number and he says, go away. Here, we see comfortable news. We see the Doctor sees the news and they have the power to broadcast worldwide. In each of these stories, they don't have the full information. Their power is the fact how prevalent they are and they have a viewership but in all of these stories they're not really able to push their agenda which is a strange disconnect between how the villains this series are people who have power they are misguided and don't have all the facts a lot of the time but they are able to use that power but here we are with the medium in the background just waiting to become that villain. Their power is through disinformation, just like Carrington, just waiting to use it. But they're always just a bit removed from the reality. It's about the reality that you're able to put forward. Are the media able to put forward their version of reality in this season? No. But the villains are. And the media are related to that concept. I think that very much relates to how we are now, Luke. 50 years later, you could say, maybe not necessarily villains, but people with outspoken voices are able to use the media to their own means because it's so sensational and the media just responds. And when the media don't have their mouthpiece... The people with the ideals have also the power to change the media to suit them. Yes, yes. Certainly in countries with state broadcasters, the state can lean somewhat on it. Or vice versa. Yes, indeed. Definitely in the case of free market economics. He said, screaming the Broadcasting Act 1990. Tewents and his hulkiness and... They've actually are ahead of the times. You can use a satellite network, not just for military purposes, but for just communication. And that's far more useful than just having it specifically for military purposes. The Doctor has made his communications device with Liz and uses it to send an SOS message on all frequencies, which unit picks up. The aliens ask for their ambassadors back or they will attack. And Carrington wants to attack first. 
Professor Cornish tries to dissuade the media to, you know, not provoke a war. Uh, he fails. When the brig tries to rescue the doctor, Carrington places him and the rest of the unit under arrest with his own military and usurps Cornish as well. The brigadier escapes and arranges a makeshift army to attack the conspirators of death in Bessie. This whole section where the brigadier escapes and then arranges a makeshift army is basically just them writing away, like contorting the plot to explain why there's no budget left, so we can't have helicopters and stuff like we did in episode two. We've got to have them just on Bessie, just drive up to this really cheap looking like airfield or whatever, and then uh, have a fight. Airfield and shed, and then yeah, fight with a couple of guns, and then oh, there's only like two or three goons there, and then that's it. After the two goons disarm the unit soldiers, the brig runs up unarmed to one of the goons and has a fist fight and at first i started writing enthusiastically oh barry Letts was like you know we can't have too much violence and I, but then he punches the dude off the cliff and in the next scene when the brig kicks the door open he shoots the dude in the hall and he dies yeah no that, that seemed pretty cold-hearted on the brig's part he he doesn't even give him a chance to surrender he just shoots him so and then, and then shoots regan's wrist off Mm. Well, see, that's more interesting is, oh, you can't shoot Regan because he looks like Roger Moore and looks... Your hair is floppy enough to survive, sir. <laughs> but he also looks the part, he looks posh. Also, it's just like, he can't because plot reasons. Like, Regan is just like the plot cogs as a character. Regan survives. That's, like, that's what I mean. He, he, he's, he's like, literally, if you wanted to have a character represent cogs of any story regan is like one that you could show point to and say that's an example of a character that exists solely to move the plot on Mm. you have the main morals of some characters really well laid out but other characters don't really have their morals laid out is this just bad writing or is this a more thematic view of what's happening nowadays a lot of the focus is on characters and on quotes and that sort of things you can share online really easily. Yeah. Whereas back then, it had to be more idea-y and thematic in order to in order to live on a bit, maybe. Hence why the, what is it, the Green Death is just known as the one with maggots, because no one remembers anything else about it when they were in the 70s. Even yeah. though they should, because, you know, environmentalism. But, yeah, that's the point. It's, it's a different type of consumable media. And the differences between 50 years ago and now are profound. Units win over the conspirators of death and their bank robbery ideals. And the Doctor and company invade the space centre using the alien ambassadors. And then there's a showdown on worldwide television. Carrington is beaten and arrested. The ambassadors are saved. And that's the end of that attempt at an intergalactic war for paranoid reasons. The Doctor understands why Carrington did it, which is nice, I suppose. And everything else is resolved off screen after a brief discussion about it. It's ever so slightly underwhelming. But nevertheless, I still enjoy this competent spy thriller, if only because Malcolm Hulk mixes a bit of sci-fi realism into it all, what with, you know, Mars probes and all that. I am going to defend the rubbish ending. Because if this is going from a David Whittaker script, 
the doctor just walking off would be like him getting in the TARDIS. So it is more Doctor Who-ish there. Yes. And having to really adapt it. You're sort of adapting the character who turns up, does his thing and walks off to a medium where he's going to be there for the next four years. In reality, if this were to happen, it would be the biggest thing in the entire world. You know, he'd be spending years dealing with the fallout from this. But the format just doesn't allow it. So therefore, that's kind of how it has to work if this is going to move on. Let's talk about this all right ambassadors of death from a behind the scenes perspective. As discussed in episode one, this story was made by that David Whittaker, a story about first contact with alien life for the previous season. And indeed, I remember in episode three where we talked about the spacesuits and they were made to look as though they came from later on in the 1970s. I I went on a really long, protracted analysis of how they look like earlier spacesuits in space. So so maybe the point about budget cuts came true. Maybe in the late 70s, the British space program, although sending up Mars probes like there's no tomorrow, has budget cuts. (laughs) Well, they've got to find the money for Mars probes somewhere. There's an alternate American ambassadors of death, presumably, where they're like, you know, all decked out in something beautiful. They've got like lipstick on the front and (laughs) they've got like long flowing hair out of the spacesuit somehow. And the British one's just like, ah, we sell a tape some more oxygen onto a (laughs) G-suit. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It stretches on for far too long and has a giant hole in the floor. (laughs) (laughs) You're referring to the serial, of course. Of course. The music for the space capsule docking part in episode one was a mixture of the Blue Danube Waltz, as used by 2001 A Space Odyssey. Chunks of this episode, at least, were inspired by 2001 A Space Odyssey. Primarily the space elements. There is a distinct feeling about this serial, about how it goes in space, that feels just a bit different. Yes, yeah. Because of that Space Odyssey influence, I think. A cement works was used for the entrance to the space centre, and these bits were filmed during an industrial dispute over the use of wet weather working clothes in said cement works. But the employees loved the BBC visiting so much that they called off the strike. The cement works then waived the fee for the BBC to use their premises and gave them beer by way of thanks for ending what seems a very trivial dispute. Now, doesn't that say a lot about the 1970s? They had this trivial dispute and then, oh, they end up helping things just because they're there. Then they get given beer. (laughs) Perfect. So Doctor Who ends an industrial dispute at the beginning of the 1970s. And then at the end of the 70s, Doctor Who is ended by an industrial dispute. (gasps) Yeah, a critic noted the structure of official conspiracy and alien presences in this season of Doctor Who. And so have we. Another critic was the ailing William Hartnell. He was interviewed by the Daily Mirror for some reason, and he complained of the adult nature of the current programme. The BBC, however, are pleased with this well-handled story, and it gets between 5.4 and 9.3 million people, with the higher figure being because of the FA Cup final immediately beforehand that week. This is pretty extraordinary for a previous doctor to criticise the current iteration of the programme. This surely must be one of the very few times that that's ever happened. 
Uh, I can't think of a modern instance of where a previous Doctor criticises the current iteration. I can't think of another instance where this has happened. Other previous holders of the role throughout time have been actors who have then gone on to different jobs, whereas Hartnell did approximately two, and then the third one was coming back to Doctor Who, and then never worked again, pretty much, for health reasons. So he has more ability to talk and indeed complain, partly because of his health and partly because of his age. Yeah, and I guess you could say it was a different time in 1970, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, there isn't there isn't this God Almighty um, show-running status which is able to, you know, rein in their doctors. Yeah, well, that was a big difference between how the classic show was managed and how the current show is. There is the yes. godlike figure of the showrunner. Well, the classic show, you had anywhere from what two to much greater number of people who actually were in control. But I guess talking about Hartnell and him criticising the way Doctor Who is in 1970 compared to Doctor Who in 1963 is partly what we're doing as Doctor Who fans in 2020, comparing Doctor Who episodes between 50 years ago and now. Thank you very much for watching. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to iTunes. Leave positive comments there. It helps. It really does. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe nicely. Next week, the first episode of Inferno, which I'm sure will make us all gooey inside. Until then, I have been Ben. I have been Luke. And I have been Nick. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.